Hey, quick message before we begin the show. In this episode, you will hear an interview with John and Kyle from Make Math Moments. It's a great conversation, and it's a conversation that really transcends math to include some great instructional practices for all educators. For the interview, we invited Janet Green to join us. Janet is one of our amazing math consultants at Grant Wood. However, our summer brains forgot to give her the introduction that she deserved at the start of the interview. So if you hear an unfamiliar voice and you're wondering who that is, it's Janet. She's a fantastic math consultant and a big fan of John and Kyle's work, so we were glad she was able to join us for this episode. Now back to the show. This is episode 94 of the EdTech Takeout from Grantwood AEA. My name is Jonathan Wiley, and six short feet across the table from me is Mindy Carney. (laughs) Back in the same room together. Face to face. And we've been together since, well, it's now going on two and a half hours. This is a new record. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or at least for 2021. For 2021. Yeah. Longest amount of time together spent today for the last episode of this school year. You said that with a very pointed <laughs> yeah. face. Like, this is it. This really is it. Yeah, this is the last yeah. one before we take our traditional summer, summer break, break from the podcast. Yeah. And uh, I think it's going to be a good show to finish on. Yeah, really excited. We have a couple special guests of sorts coming in. Even a guest host. I know, right. Really know how to say that, but yes, you nailed it. Guest host and guests. And we're excited, but we better get going here. News and follow up. Let's do news and follow up okay. because uh, last episode yeah. we talked about teacher pay teachers. Yeah, and I had a couple of people reach out, a couple of <laughs> listeners who wanted to give their opinions okay, on what we talked all right, about. All right, that's what we asked for. So Megan Curry okay. says to look at the Easel platform by okay. Teacher Pay Teachers. This wasn't something I was familiar with before. Yeah, I don't know this. Okay. But if you click on the link in the doc, you'll right. see that they have some kind of digital platform where you as a creator can use this interactive whiteboard oh. annotation type tool huh. as a digital creation tool for creating activities that you may want to put on Teacher Pay Teachers. Huh. So I'll put a link to that for anyone that wants to take a look at it. Some resources from TPT come easel ready so that they can be used with that tool. Mm -hmm. I would say that Megan didn't sound like she was overly impressed by it. (laughs) She said she would probably just use her LMS for things like this. Yeah. But it is there. It's available if anyone wants to go take a look at it. Interesting. Okay. I had not seen that before, so thank you, Megan. I also got a tweet from Tanya LeClaire, okay. who said to consider Canva mm-hmm. for educational materials now instead of TPT. They have free and paid templates. Right. But if you have the Canva education account, yeah. then most of those paid ones do tend to be free anyway. Yeah. Yep. So uh, that's something to definitely to consider. They have a lot of uh, templates and uh, things on there you can use. Tanya is part of the Canva Creator Program, and that lets her list designs in the Canva Marketplace. Oh. So that might be something if you are 
thinking about a change from TPT or yeah. you want to maybe create some things but you don't want to sell them on TPT, right. then Canva also has a marketplace for teachers. I did not know that. I wasn't aware of that either. Yeah. So maybe I'll put Tanya's Twitter account on sure. the show notes and you could reach out to her for more information. Yeah, we uh, got those Canva educator um, accounts like what it's I, like two years ago, don't you remember? And it took a little bit to get that switched over. So if you just have the free account, you have to kind of apply if it's still the same, mm-hmm. you know, apply for an educator account and then you had to kind of keep asking about it. Remember? You're like, yes. <laughs> but maybe that's changed by now. Maybe they've got it kind of smoothed out. Last I looked, because I did look, I, yeah. I teach a, a Canva class here at Grant Wood right. and they have updated it. So they say you should hear back inside of 24 hours. Oh, nice. So that's good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Got a couple of Google updates on yeah. here. It wouldn't be uh, a tape taker if we didn't do some Google updates, I guess. And uh, first one here is just a headline that amused me. It <laughs> says, Google Docs will let you overlay text on images like it's 1997. Best title ever. Isn't that? Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> so it's from Engadget, and basically yeah. it, it is what it sounds like. You are now able to put text on top of an image. Things that people have been doing for decades now <laughs> in other programs like Word and Pages and things like that. Right. And Publisher, but now you're able to do it inside of Google Docs. And they have some options for for your text, whether it's beside or overlaid or behind and all that good mm-hmm. stuff on there too. Okay. The other small uh, Google update on here is Master View in Google Slides is now called Theme Builder. Because hmm. that's important. I mean, <laughs> apparently it is. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, Lynn and I just did a whole presentation on designing in Google Slides yeah. for iTech. Yeah. We were talking about the Slide Master. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> now it's obsolete. It's now yep. the Theme Builder. So it, yeah. maybe if you're looking for it and you're like, where is the darn Slide Master? Yeah. It's now called Theme Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Slide Master, I think, is, or I, I apologize, Theme Builder, I think is, a, um, it's kind of a hard concept to get in there and like start messing with. But once you kind of figure out how to work it, you're like, oh, this saves so much time. <laughs> Don't you think? I think so too. Yeah. Yes. It, you just need to learn a couple of things. But if you inherit yeah. a template or you use one from like Slides Mania and you're like, yeah. this is great. I just wish that the links didn't keep coming up orange when yeah, I need right. blue or something. And yeah. you can just change all the links at once at that one way. Yeah, yeah, it's super nice. Okay. What else you got? Also on here, this was uh, new via Gina Rogers. Oh, Gina. Gina and I were working on something in Canvas Mm -hmm. the other day. Canvas with an S and not Canva. So Canvas, uh, they have the ability now to create an assignment that students can annotate on top of. So if you uploaded, you know, a PDF or, you know, a text or something that you wanted students to go in and underline and make comments on and highlight and stuff, you can do that now inside of Canvas, which I didn't know about. I didn't know that either. We had to go into the admin settings, I think, and Mm -hmm. turn it on. But uh, For your domain, not for the class. Is it class settings or domain settings? Did you turn it on? It was a domain setting. Yeah. Yeah. So once it is on, you should see it if you go into create an assignment mm-hmm. and you have the submission type as online. And then yeah. it's one of those check boxes underneath oh. where it's either a URL or yeah. a yeah, yeah. student annotation and all the rest. Huh. So that was new to me. So I thought I'd share it here. Good. I don't feel like Canvas makes a lot of updates. So it's always interesting to hear some because 
it's just nice to have that tool updated since we use it a lot. Yeah, we do, yeah. for sure. All right. iCivics, we have talked about before yes, as a tech have. nugget. Yep. I happened to see that they had a big update recently, so I don't know a whole lot about it, but they've mm-hmm. added a whole lot of uh, new primary sources, which nice. as a social studies site makes a lot of sense. So if you have not looked at iCivics recently, I will put a link in there to show you some of the things that they have been adding to their website. Mm-hmm. So I, I, we both added something on here for news and follow up. That's kind of just reminders. I don't have, I was, I had just put on here, find the reminder, do not delete your seesaw class. It's the end of the school year. Do not delete it. If you delete your student class or your seesaw class, it deletes all that student work. So, um, if you are within a seesaw for schools account, you're just going to leave your class alone because your admin will go in and archive all of those classes for you. So you don't need to do a thing. But if you have your own solitary account, you will want to go into your settings and archive that class instead. So do not delete, please, because that's a lot of student work and a lot of things that you've done, too. So leave that alive and archive it instead. Is there some mechanism where parents are notified that it's the end of the school year and they can go in and download stuff? Yeah, I think I... It's, you know, I always kind of wonder this too, and I don't ever remember because I haven't gotten this notification yet, but um, I think you get an email as a parent that says that you can go in and download your student's uh, portfolio, but I'm not 100% sure, and I'm never sure until right at the end of the school year when I either get that email or something comes across, so I wish I could tell you better, but parents are usually notified somehow because I go in every year and download that stuff and put it into my kids' like Google Drive folder that I have. So, Yeah, well, I saw you put that on there yeah. and I just thought I'd throw in something else I saw yeah. recently from Eric Kurtz. Oh, hi, Eric. It's not the last time he's going to be mentioned <laughs> on the show, but he has an end-of-year Google Classroom cleanup yeah. blog post that is worth a read too. So if you're coming to the end of the year with Google Classroom and thinking, how do I wind all that up? What does that look like? Sure. Well, he has some tips on there for you. Okay. Always good. You don't want to come into a messy Google Classroom and start up again next year in August, next school year. So clean it up now. Your future self will be thanking you later for sure. All right, so up next, serve to you piping hot. Our main course today is Make Math Moments That Matter, brought to you by Kyle Pierce and John Orr, who are visiting, with my air quotes, (laughs) from Canada, right? (laughs) You got it. We are uh, fresh off the... The train? I, I, don't I was going to say, what, what, what the borders say? are still closed right now, John. What the heck's going on here? I, we're not uh, completely digital. We are uh, we're super excited to be here. Thanks for having us. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about Make Math Moments That Matter? How did it get started? What's your background story? Yeah, actually, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because we still get a lot of people thinking it's almost like the assumption is that, you know, John and I maybe taught in the same school or, you know, we knew each other for for quite a long time. But actually, um, you know, we were sort of doing our own thing, working uh, our districts or neighboring districts. Um, and uh, through the Twitter, 
you know, what they call the math Twitter blogosphere. Uh, you know, this, this guy, you know, showed up on my, my Twitter feed and I saw a lot of the things he was doing. He was teaching the same course, uh, a grade nine course that, uh, you know, typically has students who maybe have had, uh, more of a negative relationship with mathematics up to that point. So it, it's one of those courses where, you know, you really have to, uh, work hard and think differently about how you're teaching if you want to engage the students. And saw so he was working on that. I, you know, we were both kind of at a very similar similar uh, spot in our careers, having uh, taught very what we would consider traditional in uh, in our own experiences, you know, sort of a, a, a gradual release of responsibility model and wasn't working. And, uh, you know, we sort of were at a very similar spot and started to collaborate mm-hmm. online. And uh, it, it sort of started growing from there. Yeah, like uh, I, I remember that uh, Kyle and I kind of, uh, like he said, we co- we collaborated in a sense where we we joined up to say, um, let's let's share ideas. And I don't think we had met face to face at that point. And and we'd say, hey, what are you doing in your class? What am I doing in my class? Let's let's make a you know a Google Doc, a spreadsheet, and share lessons and resources that we we've uh, we've you know used over the years that are have a lot of value. And we started to realize that some of the things that we were doing, uh, you know, like we, we had these lessons that were, were a success over here, and Kyle was having success over here. And we said, hey, let's let's combine on what's going on. Like, what are you doing? That's like having this success to like have kids who have traditionally, you know, been told they're bad at math or feel they're not so great at math. And they're like, I love math now. And so we were talking about like, what are we doing? And, and the make math moments was, was born out of, of us coming together and going, Hey, there's actually like some elements here in our lessons that uh, are really making a difference in our classes. And we tried to pinpoint, we came together and said, let's pinpoint these elements that are, uh, you know, making this difference in our students and came up with like a a framework and we started presenting on this framework. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, a couple of years later, the podcast was born and uh, we've got, uh, uh, you know, a podcast that we're producing every week um, and to talk about these these ideas, these lessons in our in our classrooms, really. And that's where we kind of joined up. But uh, it didn't, you know, it was a little bit easier because Kyle actually lives only about 15 minutes from me and we didn't even know it. <laughs> oh, and now you're besties. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So how long have you been collaborating? Yeah, it's it's actually been uh, now going back to probably, I'd say, what, 2004? 15 or 16 yeah. kind of when we started I think even before that yeah i think i think uh, the the pod you know the podcast has only been around about two and a half years and then and then going back before that we've been presenting together for a few years before that and then i think we started collaborating that first time i've got a spreadsheet i think with 2014 on it as uh, our grade nine class look at you that's that that's that's a while yeah, it really is. Uh, we've, you know, learned a ton along the way. And, uh, you know, something that I think is really interesting. It actually, John, now that you mention it, you know, the first time we presented was at uh, one of those ed camps. And, uh, you know, you yes. sort of go and you just kind of put a sticky on the chart and you go <laughs> and you, you know, kind of just share. And, you know, we sort of went, you, you want to try this? You know, we are, we're both at the conference, probably one of the first times, probably the second time we were kind of together uh, in person in the flesh. And uh, we said, yeah, let's go and, you know, sort of, sort of, you know, spitball some ideas here. And uh, that was, uh, that was a really cool session. And it, and it sort of had our 
minds open, our eyes open to uh, to some possibilities. And I, I think what mm-hmm. we've realized over the years is that you know by having more of like a team mentality you know, you can learn so much more, right? Because anytime something would work well in John's class, you know, he would, I, I could ask him about it and say like, how come the lesson didn't work so great with my students? Like we were lo- using a very similar approach or at least what we thought was a similar approach. You know, what do you think were those elements that, you know, that sort of pushed it over the edge? Whereas in my class, I felt like it kind of flopped really early. And that was uh, sort of that process of really trying to narrow down. And and one of the things we realize, and we say this quite a bit with uh, with all of our workshop participants, is you know it's not luck. Like for many years, we thought like a good lesson was just like yay, we got lucky that day. You know, like kids were the kids were engaged, and you know all the stars aligned. But in reality, I'm sure some of that helps. Uh, but in reality, it was you know there was elements there that you know we were either including some days or not including, but we just weren't aware of what they were. And we're like, if we can really figure out what those pieces are, like what matters here, you know, was it a video we showed? Like, you know, we used to get tricked by those things, right? Like a video is going to engage our kids or, you know, something really uh, exciting about, you know, uh, Minecraft or whatever kids are interested at the time. That's going to be what gets kids interested in our class. And we realized that it's actually so much more than that. And uh, there's so many other underlying uh, pieces there that we have to pay attention to. Okay. So Kyle, you have to tell me, is that how your three-part framework kind of came to be? Yeah. I remember distinctly uh, in, you know, I don't think we've ever really talked about this uh, even on our podcast, but I remember we were planning for a session and I remember being at, in my kitchen, we were at the island, Mm -hmm. John, I don't Mm -hmm. know if you remember, we had all kinds of notes Papers were everywhere. Yeah, scattered. And I said, we need to, like, we need to figure out, like, let's start grouping, you know, like, let's start, like, almost like mind mapping what works where. Like, we think this is important. We think this is important. What could we call these things? And that was the, you know, Mm -hmm. it took a long time, but, you know, over time, we were able to sort of, you know, pinpoint different things. And, And interestingly enough, we tended to over, we focused a lot in, maybe one area. Like we have three parts to that framework. We used to focus a lot on curiosity and it was almost like we put all of our eggs into that basket. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we feel like we left so much mathematics on the table when we did that. Yeah. And I remember that we we would we were we were getting our kids engaged. And that was a big buzzword and still is a big buzzword for many educators. It's like we want engagement. We want engagement. We want we want to have these kids like, you know, like loving math. And I think like Kyle said, is that we spent a ton of time there early in this development of changing our lessons, is that we were really concerned about kids really loving math and getting the engagement because that that uh that that changed our classroom and we got some great results and kids engaged and loving math. And all of a sudden that turns into deeper understanding um, at, at some point. But I think what, what you're saying, Kyle, when, when we left a lot of math on the, on the table is that we would get them engaged uh, by by you know lots of different strategies uh, uh, the, over the over uh, the years, but that like that what is that element of curiosity is kind of what we boil down to is like hey we need to have this element of curiosity that's going to help engagement, and then that math that was left on the table was was that 
this third, the, the second piece, which is like fueling sense making. We think every lesson, if it's going to make a math moment that matters to students, then that that lesson has to have a fueling sense making piece for kids. And why, what what we mean by that is we get all our kids engaged, that they're ready to go, and and they're like in the lesson, and then we'd say. Okay, well, now let me just do an example here on the board. And then that engagement was lost. And there was actually like no deeper understanding of the math and, and, the, and the ideas behind the math. We wanted deeper understanding of math concepts. We wanted to build conceptual understanding. Uh, but we were really just going back to the way we did it before. So we like built a lot of engagement, which is our spark and curiosity piece of the framework, but then didn't fuel their sense making. And we spent a ton of time after realizing that, uh, that, Hey, we need to actually dig deeper here. And we started to develop lessons, full lessons and full units around how to fuel sense making in students. Uh, as after you've got them engaged and uh, there's a lot of learning there, especially on the teacher's end uh, uh, on, on math concepts to like really dig into the, the conceptual understanding of mathematics. So I do have another question, but do you want to talk a little bit about the third part of the framework in case our listeners maybe haven't heard about this yet? <laughs> Yeah. Right. They're like, wait, you said two yeah. parts, which is <laughs> yeah. sparking curiosity yeah. and fueling sense making. What's the third part? Kyle? Yeah, yeah. No, I, absolutely. So, you know, that that engagement piece, it's really important. Kids have to be paying attention. They have to be, you know, fully invested in the math, in the problem, really. And and really what, what it came down to is we we're like problem-based lessons. This is how we have to go at this thing through curiosity. John, like he's saying, there has to be intentionality, that fueling sense-making piece, which was really hard because what we found at that point in the framework as we dug deeper was, holy smokes, we actually don't understand the math ourselves as well as we must or we should. And uh, a, a great example, I use this example all the time right now. I literally just hung up with some of, uh, some of the educators in my district. Uh, we were doing a math talk. And, you know, we were revealing the two types of division, right? And, and I have a math degree and I did not know that there were two types of division. I thought division was division and division is this thing that you just do and, you know, you, you do a lot of it and that's it. And what we realized, there's so much under the hood there. So that fueling sense making was that second piece. And then the third piece which is something that's happening at all times. It's not like, you know, yeah, uh, it's not steps. Yeah. It's not steps necessarily. Like we have to be thinking about all of these things and how they all kind of intersect. And the third part is igniting your teacher moves, we call it, or your next moves. And that's, that's the pedagogical piece. Like what, what, what are you going to do if you're leading your lesson and a student says this, Right, we have to be thinking about that, and of course, we can't anticipate everything. Something that we uh, we reference all the time that has influenced the framework. Uh, first of all, the framework is built on all kinds of ideas that are out there. It's uh, you know that have been brought together, and one of those pieces is the five practices by uh, uh, Peg Smith and uh, Mary Kay Stein. Uh, Mary Kay Stein, thank you, John. And you know, in the five practices, the anticipation stage is so key to help us with our pedagogical moves. So as we're going through a problem-based lesson, if I'm only thinking about the problem in one way through my eyes, what am I going to do when a student, I, I, I don't know, I'm just going to look for some head nods. We're on a video here. Uh, I'm just wondering if you've ever taught a math lesson and there was a student who wasn't necessarily at the readiness that the curriculum demanded of them. 
right? All my Kyle, all my kids are always up here. They're never spaced <laughs> yeah. out. You and, know? Like, and it's all always the same they're always spot. at the exact same spot, right? <laughs> like that's what I found over yeah. my career, right? Yeah, right? Never. No teacher ever has ever said that. So we have to be thinking about those pedagogical moves. How are we going to help all of those students in some way, shape, or form? And meet them where they are if we're not trying to at least anticipate where they might be approaching this problem from. And then what am I going to do to help connect those ideas? So again, that stage is all about kind of thinking about how does this come together so that you're not like John and I for almost a decade where we were like working hard to engage students. We got them going. And then all of a sudden it was we still hit the math brick wall where our high flyers were just spitting out answers with no understanding. And then we had all these other students who were shutting down because they didn't know what to do. So those teacher moves are so important in order to make sure that the questions are purposeful, uh, that uh, we're not going to um, ostracize any students in our classroom, right? When they're coming at it with, uh, say, more of a concrete approach, or maybe they're thinking using like counting or an additive approach when everyone else is thinking multiplicatively. Uh, these are really important things that uh, we weren't considering for the vast majority of our uh, early years in our teaching careers. So I would imagine a lot of listeners right now are like, I identify with this. This is me. I mean, everything you're saying is what's happening in my classroom. So if they're looking to make a change at kind of an entry level, what would be your recommendation? Where do they start? What's that first little tweak that they can start doing to start seeing a little bit of change? Yeah, sure. And I think I think probably even my suggestion might even be different than Kyle's suggestion. Uh, just because I think we're, you know, we're Kyle being a K to 12 math consultant, he sees from from K all the way to 12. I'm a high school math teacher. Um, I would say, say the this is different than the, how I also started to change my practices is that is that this is why I say it now is, is one of the easiest things that we can do right now, uh, is, is, and, and, and this will like this one change can help change lots of things later on, which is kind of opens the door. And I would, and I would say that it's, it's a structural change too. It's not like a, a, it's not a full pedagogical change. It's not like we have to change everything about my teaching program right now. Um, this is a, this is a, a, a actually a reference or a tool that we learned from Peter Lillidal, who uh, actually recently just hold a, released a book called the thinking classrooms. He's a, he's a professor of education, uh, at Simon Fraser university and out in British Columbia, uh, here in Canada. And, uh, Peter, Peter talks about, uh, you know, he, he, he threw the big, big phrase out at us. It's called vertical non-permanent surfaces, which is a fancy way of saying, I know it's, it, I said it really fast because it, it, it actually doesn't really matter. It's basically a big whiteboard, right? <laughs> oh. So, so, so he called it vertical because you're standing up. Uh, which is which is a key a key key thing, uh, non permanent being hey you can race it so basically a chalkboard too, um, so so why I'm saying this is because when I introduced this into my classroom which is I put whiteboards around the room like uh, whiteboards not for me to use for my students to use and when I did that and asked them to move to the whiteboards. Uh, and ask kids to solve problems first. This is what we also teach in our programs um, about the framework is that when we're teaching through problem-based lessons, we're not, say, 
teaching, hey, this is how you do these problems. We're allowing our students to get into problems and then productively struggle with problems. And when I ask them to move to the boards and in, let's say, pairs or groups of three together while standing, uh, kids were faster to get to work, uh, faster to start writing down. They're sharing ideas back and forth. Like things changed in my classroom, uh, even though I already started different, different things, but that was the biggest, I think, change was, was making this one thing is having kids stand up and, and why standing up is important is because Peter has done the research on, um, you know, he measured uh, how long it took kids to write things down while sitting with a whiteboard versus standing with a whiteboard. And they were faster with standing with a whiteboard. Like you, you know, like when you would teach a lesson and you would ask kids to like, if you were, if you were delivering it from the front or, and they were sitting at their desks and you'd say, okay, we'll write this, you know, we're going to, I want you to try this problem. And then you would watch the kids go, they're, they're all like pausing. They're like waiting to see like, are you going to yeah, do it? He's going to break. Or am yeah. I going to do it? And then I'm like, well, do I start now? Like, you know what I mean? Like when they're standing and you say, do that, they're, they're going, they're like, it's fast. It's the, the strategies are forming faster than it is if they're sitting and the non-permanence allows it to, to be risky. You know, kids can be risky that way. So, so yeah. when we put that with our framework, uh, it's, it's a small thing. It's like, you don't have to all of a sudden be like, Hey, I'm going to change to be a problem-based lesson teacher. But I could ask my students uh, to solve some problems at the boards, and then we can talk about their strategies and solutions after. And I've seen lots of teachers who have not changed a lot about their programs and done that one small change and seen huge gains. John, that that's a great one. I, I think you're right. I think you know that is a, an easy change that you can make um, to, to see some, something happen, right? Cause that's the mm -hmm. other thing in, mm -hmm. in education. We make small changes or we try to make a big change. And, you know, we like sometimes lose faith because we're not seeing anything happen right away. So you sort of go, eh, maybe it's not working or maybe there's a negative effect immediately. Uh, that one is definitely great. Um, from a, from a lesson structure standpoint, uh, I would say, you know, we call it the real flipped classroom. So if you mm -hmm, just kind of picture mm -hmm. this in your mind, uh, and this is an oversimplification, of course, but if you picture this in your mind of, you know, the gradual release of responsibility model for teaching, which uh, when I first got into math coaching and presenting, I literally was teaching teachers how to do that model better. And now I realize <laughs> that model itself needs to flip around. So we call it the real flipped classroom. And basically what we're saying is let's throw out the pre-teaching kids have intuition, you know, and, and where does intuition come from? A lot of people, you know, when you say, it, you know, it's intuitive, a lot of people like believe it's like a nature thing, like you were born with it, but actually intuition is a combination of that, but also nurture, like what your experiences have given you, you know, and you start to, you develop things, right? When you, when you uh, feel fear, you know, some, some of that's nature, but a, a lot of that's nurture as well, based on your experiences, right? You know, don't touch the stove. The same thing is true in a math classroom. Students are bringing so much more with them into our classroom doors or through those doors than we even realize. So if we give them the opportunity to productively struggle, struggle, the key is productive. We have to really get to know our learners so that we are putting them into a position where they can productively struggle. And sometimes that culture needs to be built and, and worked on. And we have in our minds 
ensure that that problem is accessible to all learners, and we've we've sort of thought about the different approaches that students might come at it from, then students can truly problem solve. But as soon as we say, here's how you do blank, and then we offer up the opportunity for them to problem solve, like John said. So I, I would argue if you're going to go to that vertical non-permanent surface model, like John said, and you continue to give an example and then have them do it, you'll probably still see some improvement. But I'm telling you, if you give them a challenge and you te- you don't tell them that there's a specific strategy you're looking for and you're just asking them to, to like really convince you of a solution here, you're going to see something magically change in your classroom. And they might not do it the first time. Like Peter Lildehall, I, I remember on our podcast, he said, he's like, the first time he asked his students to think, it took two whole days. You know, he, he said, I'm going to go photocopy. And he just left the class. <laughs> this and he is, was staring this is out. years ago, though. Yeah, very years <laughs> ago. Now you'll get fired. That. Don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that. But, uh, but Peter, you know, he was in a portable and, and he, he left his classroom and he was sort of like peeking in through the window. And he said, like, literally for an entire period, kids did nothing. Because they had been so, and you know, and this was in a secondary classroom. So for years, students had been trained to sit and wait before they did anything. Like imagine you go on the baseball diamond and coaches are like, don't grab gloves, don't grab the ball, don't grab the bat until I show you how to swing a bat. No, you you go out there, you try it, that coach helps, you know, we, we, we help. It, it's like in sports, it's so obvious, but in math, we, we tend to uh, pre-teach everything. So again, flip that philosophy around. We still can do some teaching. We do teaching along the way and we consolidate and we ensure that every student has gained some understanding and some connections. Every student's going to walk away with something a little different, but hopefully they're going to walk away with more than what they entered your class with. We have been doing some reading on uh, you, y'all, and we, and I think that's what you're talking about. You calling it reverse flip, but yeah, giving the kids a chance individually to think slash struggle and then work together. And then that teacher move you're talking about or teacher moves. Absolutely. That's exactly it. So we kind of are coming off of this like crazy, unique school year. And we have kind of been tossing around with teachers and ourselves, like what's something that we're going to keep doing or stop doing, continue to do? What are your kind of takeaways from the situation that you're coming out of from this last year? Yeah, so what a uh, what a tough year for for everybody. Even here in Canada and Ontario, specifically at the time of this recording, we are still uh, actually we went to remote learning fully uh, of, uh, back in April and are still remote learning as of now. And I know that some of the states are starting to open back up. We are still kind of locked down right now in Ontario. Hopefully, opening soon before summer. Um, but, uh, yeah, some of the things that uh, we, we had talked about this on our podcast too, about, you know, silver linings and, and I know that, uh, one silver lining that kind of just stands out to me still is, is this idea of, of getting to know our students and, and, uh, like really making connections with, with our students. And I know that it became especially important when we moved online. Like I've, I just started here in Ontario, 
we have like uh, cohorting where right? we're trying to keep kids in groups instead right. of, uh, you know, have them uh, in high school rotate from class to class. They'll stay in one class all day. And so I'll teach math with this group all day um, for a week and then uh, they would go to another class. But anyway, uh, we did this in, in quad masters, which is instead of like a full year program, you've got a quarter year program. And so I will see these kids, you know, for a quarter of the year. So when we moved to online in April, we started a quad master fully remote and and which means that I did not meet my students until we were meeting online and, and if you're a high school teacher you know that when you're teaching online you're rarely going to see those cameras come on you're you're rarely going to get like hey are I talking into the wind out there guys like are you there or did you just turn your computer on and walk away and so I think it it, it reminds me reminded me that something to keep doing and that is that we have to get to know our kids on that personal level we have to we have to understand who our students are and and treat our kids the way they need to be treated you know and and, and understand you know different aspects about them because it's only that way that they're going to you're going to make a connection with them that that can be useful in the classroom, you know, like the kids aren't going to learn from you unless they trust you. And, and you, they have to know that you have, they have, you have their best interest in mind. And that's something that I, I, I learned a few years ago, but transferred into when we went remote, but definitely want to continue when we go back. It's, it's, what are we doing to, uh, to make sure our kids feel welcomed into our classrooms, whether they're virtual or not. Um, and what are we doing to make sure that they feel like they're getting everything they need in that learning environment? So that's something for me that it's just like, I always have to, I always want to remind that, but I think it became very clear when we went remote that that was a very, uh, a very much of a, a priority for us uh, to move forward. Yeah. And for, uh, for me, the, the, like, I think a silver lining is, I mean, first of all, I, I have to say educators everywhere, you know, the work that they have done through this uh, pandemic and and through this crazy last year, and and many are still engaging in some form of chaos, right? Uh, depending on the jurisdiction and the rules and the regulations and restrictions. So, uh, first off, I, I've got to say, education—it's it, that space where no matter what happens, you're going to get your all uh, from everyone. So, I mean, I, I want to make sure that everyone who's listening, you know, you you give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, but, you know, a silver lining for me is I, I think a lot of educators immediately when we went online sort of, you know, at first you feel like you want to default back to what you know best, which oftentimes is not necessarily a very student-centered experience. But over time, as many educators, I think, saw firsthand how few students were engaging in that model I, I think a silver lining for many is that they're sort of starting to branch out a little bit and, and maybe the stakes were a little bit lower as well, because I think for a lot of educators, they were going, holy smokes, this is so difficult. It's so hard to engage students online and it's, you know, are they even going to show up and, you know, all these other challenges. So to almost lower the stakes a little bit and be able to try something new because you're sort of going, well, it's not what I'm doing is not really working all that well. So it can't really get much worse. Whereas if I had a good group of students and I say by good, 
like a large group of students who were uh, achieving or receiving the grade uh, that, you know, your district wants or your principal wants, uh, it's hard to change from something that's working for a good chunk of students. And that leaves so many students behind. Whereas in this model, it seems that so many students are sort of struggling in this land. And, you know, again, if that's going to lower the stakes and, and allow them to feel more confident in trying something different to maybe doing that flipped uh, approach to teaching and really starting to get students solving problems and making it more student-centered. Uh, if, if that's a win we can walk away with where teachers kind of go, you know what? I bet you this would work even better when we go back to face-to-face, when I get students working and collaborating and we get to start, you know, I get to be a part of the learning process as well, because again, that's another big piece that we have to learn as educators is that we're not the answer key. We're not, you know, the one that has all of the answers and, and all of the ideas to share. It's the students who are going to bring ideas and our expertise is going to be able to try to leverage those ideas and elevate them and kind of nudge them forward, right? So we want them to see that, you know what, this is your ideas. And all kinds of mathematicians have had these similar ideas along the way as well. And here's where we're going to try to push those ideas to so that everyone feels a part of that process. I, I think that's a big win that we can uh, we can walk away with. And, and I'll say it, it's worth it if if we have more educators coming out of this thinking differently about teaching math than we did coming into it. So this is an ed tech podcast. What digital tools do you really love or recommend in your mm-hmm. math instruction? Scientific yeah. calculators. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Take it back. Take it. Uh, back. Can we delete that? <laughs> uh, good one. Good one. Uh, yeah. You know what? Um, we've actually we've we chat a lot about this. Kyle and I actually kind of when we started our journey into morphing our classroom. I think I think that journey did come out of of a technology based uh, change as we thought, Hey, ed tech is going to change uh, lots of things of our classroom. And I think it did. Uh, and then we kind of more generalized and say, Hey, there's the, the elements that we were using to with our technology, I think it's a broader approach here. It doesn't have to be technology all the time that does that. That was like what spurred us to become Apple distinguished educators. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, invest a, a lot in, in technology, but I think it made us think about how we use technology at a deeper level. And in, in our programs, we have a, we have an academy, uh, uh, academy for teacher professional development. We work with districts and, uh, teacher, individual teachers as well, um, uh, to join that academy. And there's, a, there's a community in there of teachers sharing ideas. Uh, we have full courses in there and we have a course on how to choose a technology appropriately for the math class. And uh, it's got you know three modules uh, of of how to you know learning about different ways to look at technology and and a couple of things that we bring up in that course is is like what are our look for is like we all we have these like we all have like great activities that we love um, and it but it, but I mean sometimes you're like. Uh, somebody in the staff room or or at the lunch table will say, "Hey, you should use this this activity, or you should try this piece of technology, right? You should try that." And I and I feel like when we th- when we get those, it's like there's so much, right? There's so many technology things out there for us to like consider. It's it's what we realized is that if you have like a filter 
going into these things, then, then when you, someone passes you a piece of technology or an activity, if it passes through your like filter, then you're like, I'll explore that because actually I don't have any time to actually explore everything you throw at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you've been in staff meetings where the administrator is like, Oh, everyone shall try this program. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, I don't really have time for that. But mm-hmm. if the filter can actually save you a ton of time. And so like we talk about choosing look fors uh, for yourself on like what you really value in your math class. And this doesn't have to be for math, obviously, but what do you really value in your classroom activities? Like, uh, because if it passes through the, that look, those look fors, then, then you could say, okay, well, you know what? I should look at this because it passes the, the values that I have. And I'll just, uh, we talk about four look fors in, in the, uh, that we talk about in the course. I'll just throw out two of them. One, uh, one look for is, is this idea. I, I, I name this in the course of this, like a, an easy word to remember, which is show and show for me means like, uh, does this activity or does this tool or does this piece of technology, uh, allow my students to show their learning and thinking in interesting ways? You know, we talked about our framework of that we want kids to demonstrate strategies. Actually, we really want to see their thinking so that we can help them uh, you know, along their journey. And, it, and if a tool or an activity or a piece of technology can allow me to see that thinking uh, easy or in an easy way and also interesting ways, uh, then you know what? That passes my filter. Um, so for example, like one tool that doesn't meet that criteria for me is like Kahoot. I know people love oh, Kahoot because it's so game-based. We're on the same team. But Kahoot. But Kahoot, I know, I just like burned somebody's yeah, bridge right now. I burn there, bridges right? all the like, time. It's fine. Everyone's <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I'm going to throw this in the garbage right now. But I'm not saying Kahoot is a terrible program at all. I'm just saying it doesn't pass that filter for me because when I have played Kahoot with my students, uh, it's like, hey, you, you know, the question goes up and it's like, how fast can we do this? And so it, the technology doesn't actually allow for my students to showcase their thinking in interesting ways. Uh, I want to see that. I want it to be creative. I want them to, to show me that thinking. Whereas like a whiteboard does all those things, right? Super easy. Um, so for, for example, that's one of the, one of the criteria that we look for. Um, another one, uh, that I look for is, is basically, uh, like uh, it's similar. It's, I guess it's related to show, but I say assess, like how can I assess my students, uh, on a quick basis? Because we talk about in our framework that we have to be ready to pivot based on what kids say. And so when we ask them to show their thinking, I want to be able to kind of quickly see that thinking and then be able to assess where we are on, on the learning journey or the learning goals for the day. And so like, can a tool do that? And so here's a tool that I feel like does pass that criteria and it passes the other criteria as well is, is Desmos's activity builder. So Desmos activity builder, uh, uh, pre-built activities already on teacher.desmos.com, but you have the freedom to create your own. They have that, that, that base that you can actually build on their platform. Um, but, uh, those activities are built so, or you can build them so that you can, you know, it, it, you can see that it, they're understanding interesting ways, like, especially when you ask them to graph things. And it's the type of questions that I think that you need to ask that allow for that, but the, t- the tool will allow that to happen. And then also you can assess on the fly what's happening. You can see everybody's screen all at the same time. You can, you can see, you know, like histograms of things that 
that are coming in, uh, you can actually take snapshots of their work. Kids can upload solutions that they're working on at their home into the program. So it passes those two filters for me. So that's one, uh, that's one tool that, uh, that I'm using a lot, uh, in my classrooms at, you know, remotely, but also face-to-face great tool for both. Kyle, what do you, what do you, uh, what are you using? I, I think I think you nailed it. I I don't. I'm not even going to mention any of the tools because I mean Desmos is amazing. Uh, you know, a, a great I would say uh, a way to elevate if you are a Kahoot lover out there is maybe to check out <laughs> Knowledge Hook uh, for our math teacher mm-hmm. friends because the, mm-hmm. one of the things we love about that tool and this actually John and I both had a, a big say in you know, them bringing this feature out because it was, it was sort of why we didn't want to use the tool initially. It was too much like Kahoot, but it was the show your solution option, which is basically a little button. The students get to take a photo of their work. And now I have it in a portfolio and I can, I can pass that through that filter John just mentioned. But, you know, if, if I'm looking at technology in general, something, and this was a misstep by John and I early in our career, early in this journey was we thought technology was going to fix everything in our classroom. And, and I think that happens a lot. Uh, it's okay if it's still happening for you right now, for the listener who's listening, who's going like, hmm, maybe that's me. That's okay. It's, it's a stage. It's, you know, we're trying, but sometimes I would grab and it was like the whole focus was the technology. And again, it's like if if we think about what John just shared and, and through the filters, those were just two of the filters, you know, you think about why am I doing this? Is it about the technology? Because the technology is cool. It's engaging. It's going to, again, uh, you know, it interests my, my students for maybe a day or two. Or is the tool actually going to transform how I'm going to deliver this lesson? Or is it going to hinder how I was going to deliver the lessons. So mm-hmm. those are the things that were really weighing out. I used to try to incorporate technology and almost force it every single day because I had iPads in my classroom and I thought that was going to fix everything, but it didn't. It really didn't. It, it didn't do a whole lot uh, except when I found those tools that actually made a difference, but I wasn't using those tools enough. I was using too many tools and trying to do too many things with it. So that would be, I think our big message there is that technology is great, but remember, you know, great math lessons can happen with no tech or with uh, we'll call a whiteboard technology with a very unplugged technology as well. Uh, so, you know, just make sure you're, you're kind of weighing out those things is the effort you put into integrating a technology tool into my classroom. Is this worth it? Is it worth the time I have to spend to get everybody logged in and, you know, Oh, 14 kids lost their password. <laughs> and, you know, is this going to be something that's going to actually amplify my lessons on a regular basis, then maybe it's worth that effort. But if not, then maybe I want to reconsider whether now is the time I want to integrate that specific tool. Janet, do you have any questions? Um, I just would like you to share how people can follow you, find you. You've uh, shared some things that you have, and I know everybody out there wants to know more. Yeah, sure. Uh, you can, our, our kind of home base is uh, makemathmoments.com. And uh, that's where you can uh, learn more about us and the programs we have. Uh, we post uh, regular video blog posts weekly. We have our podcast there, which is a weekly podcast. 
Um, you can uh, learn more about our, uh, you know, our, our academic program, our, our professional development program, uh, the Academy over at makemathmoments.com forward slash Academy. Uh, we have a free 30 days for anybody to get in there uh, and look. And Kyle, uh, do you want to chat about the tasks? Yeah, actually something that's like been completely consuming my brain for uh, for many months now, but I'm loving it, is uh, problem-based units. So, you know, we've been doing this podcast for the past couple of years. We've been sharing. We, we used to share kind of like one-off tasks on our individual blogs, which are still out there and still available and, you know, have at her. But what we realized was a lot of teachers were taking these and kind of like technology, they're just grabbing a task. They're like, today we're going to do this task. And then it was like back to the you know, the old method of teaching. So we wanted to uh, start developing more like full units that kind of take you from start to finish uh, with a teacher's guide and even walkthroughs that really uh, progress developmentally. Uh, They have math talks integrated, purposeful practice, all these pieces that teachers would ask us about and say, well, are you, are you just always uh, teaching with these types of lessons or is this just what we do on Fridays or what does this look like? So uh, those are over there on the website as well. So like John said, if you head over to makemathmoments.com, uh, you can just click on the, uh, the tasks button and uh, go check those out. They're open for uh, teachers to check out. Some of the guides are uh, for our Academy members, but uh, we always keep day one open so you can get a full experience in there. And like John said, Hop into the academy and uh, learn as much as you can in that uh, that 30-day trial. So give it a shot. Well, thank you so much. This has been really intriguing, and I'm super excited that we got to talk to you, and I know Janet was too. So we will link all of those resources into our show notes so that people can find you a little bit more easily. And you guys are welcome back anytime. Awesome stuff. We, uh, we're so glad to be here and uh, we thank you for inviting us on and, and, uh, and having this chat with us. We love uh, chatting about math. Awesome. Yes. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure and uh, thank you for, uh, for having us. Hopefully you have a, a great remainder of the school year here and an awesome summer. Yeah, you too, guys. All right. So my favorite part of this show up next is Tech Nuggets. Oh, and this is where Eric Kurtz comes in. You know what? I had a um, tech nugget that I saw from Eric Kurtz. I came in to put it in and saw that you had put the doc of all. I was like, this is like a whole year's worth of tech nuggets, but you're going to hand them off in one shot today. So you might as well go first. (laughs) Yes, I have a year's worth of tech nuggets here. And I I wonder, I also had one I was going to share and I wonder if it's the same one that you were going to share, but mm. maybe we can talk about that. Okay. Was it graspables or yes. something? Yes. <laughs> That's the one I was going to and do. And then I'm like, oh, what is this doc that he has in here that says maths integration or whatever from Eric? And I'm like, no, I'm sure mine's on there. So, Well, I'll be 100% truthful. I think graspables looks amazing, yeah. but I don't know enough about math to explain it, so yeah. I didn't include it here. Yeah. But mm-hmm. what I did include was a doc that I saw Eric share on Twitter. Yep. And this seems to be a doc that he's had going for some time. It is a cumulative doc that people can add resources to if Mm -hmm. they email Eric and he kind of just 
updates it on a monthly basis and it is all math resources. Now, I'm not going to vouch for every single one on here, but every time he finds a great math resource or somebody suggests a great resource, it goes on this doc. So there are dozens and dozens and dozens yeah, of ed tech, of tech nuggets that we could have used all next year. <laughs> so you're welcome, is what Mindy meant to say. <laughs> Yes, it's a great, it's great. You should definitely take a look at it for sure. So this, I'm going to, I'm going to stay with the theme of math mm-hmm. for this next one because, uh, right? I mean, that's why I chose a math nugget. It's all about math today. So yeah. I um, had not seen this before, but it's from the Kentucky Center for Mathematics. It is a website full of Jamboard templates. That's all virtual manipulative types of things and games. And I think that a lot of people often are asking for Jamboard templates and I have some to share, but I felt like this was a really great spot that has a bunch of different math themed Jamboards that would definitely be worth taking a look at. So there you have it. Thank you, Kentucky. I would just say as a small addendum to that, some of them are Google Slides, but a lot of them are Jamboard right. here, right? So yes. that's really yep. good. Yep. You can just click on the link and it will force you to make a copy. Mm-hmm. You get your own version. They also have a copy link. And I like that they have a little video tutorial that goes alongside each one so that you could learn how you might use that type of activity. Yeah. So go math. Go Kentucky? Yeah, go Kentucky. <laughs> All right, so my second uh, tech nugget is oerproject.com. Okay. And this was a fairly recent one to me, and I haven't dug into it as much as maybe I could have yet, just because it is such a big uh, resource here Mm -hmm. that you might want to take a look at. So oerproject.com, based on open educational resources, it's a social studies site, and... uh, focused on free online adaptable lessons to meet uh, your students' needs. They've got things like the Big History Project, the World History Project. They've got Project X and Project Score. And a lot of these are all mapped to curriculum standards as well. So if you are looking for some social studies resources, they have things like, you know, basically they're like standalone courses, some of them that you can just teach as a preparation for AP or college and things like that. So they're definitely more secondary based uh, tools on here, but they've got lots of great resources for social studies teachers if you are looking for that too, as well as ideas just for like K-12 social studies. They've Mm -hmm. got the the OC Mm -hmm. for social studies. So... Lots of things on here. You can uh, sign up, get uh, an account with them, and get updates from all their great free stuff. Yeah, great resource. Well, I feel like you said math in that one, too. Did you say math? No, I did not. Oh, I thought you said something math. I was like, I don't see anything math there, but this last one is not anything to do with math at all, and it's just a little tidbit. I... um, happened to, well, I've known this for a while, but I feel like I said this to you the other day and you're like, I did not know that you could do that. So you can search your Google Drive using your Omnibox and Google Chrome. 
Okay, tell me more. So today when we were working on um, a session for a school district with old resources, right? And I knew the name of that session in my Google Drive. I could just use the search button in Chrome, like just the old Omnibox, and start typing that in. And way down at the bottom of that autofill will pop in any documents or things that you have in your Google Drive. Well, that's a very timely little nugget, isn't yeah, it? Did you know that? I feel like I knew that, but I forgot that. Mm, I, I know I definitely don't use that. Yeah. So um, I use it all the time. I never search in my drive anymore. Okay. Yeah. I always go straight to drive. That is yeah. my default. So I need to think about that more. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. All very right. interesting. Omnibox for searching your Google Drive. Yeah. So I think that about uh, rounds up everything we have for our final episode before the summer. Yeah. And Mindy goes incognito now for three months. I love it. Mindy will go incognito. <laughs> I can't give any promises when our next episode will be back right. from the summer, but it's going to be in that maybe August, September range. Yeah, somewhere in there. Something in there. Yeah. Uh, we have lots of great ideas for things to talk about in future episodes. And of course, we have that elusive 100th episode coming up yeah. too. So We'll hit it next school year for sure. We will. Mm-hmm. So until next time. This has been the EdTech Takeout. We hope it hit the spot. For more information on today's episode, please visit dlgwaea.org slash podcast.